This passage is fascinating. And it's also a passage that never was read at Signal Mountain Baptist Church when I was growing up. This was a Southern Baptist church, and it was too controversial because it openly talked about wine. I didn't know this was in the Bible until I was about halfway through, the, through seminary. And then when I began to hear and experience what this stands for, it turns out to be an extraordinary passage. It impacts us in very important ways. And it sort of gets channeled through our lives too. In fact, just a few weeks ago, many of you have been appreciating Bill Neal, as I have, as our new pastor to senior adults and pastoral care, uh, interim pastor, and he's having to travel a lot and drive around a lot, and, and it just so happened a couple of weeks ago he actually got stopped uh, while he was driving, and the policeman came to the window and, and uh, asked for identification, and then said, uh, what is that you've got beside you on the seat? Bill said, oh, it's just a bottle of water. And the officer said, could I see it, please? Bill handed it to him. He opened it up. He said, sir, this is not water. This is wine. And Bill said, thank you, Jesus. He's done it again. (laughs) Did that really happen, Bill? (laughs) Stranger things have happened. Well, this story gets percolated through our, our thoughts and minds, and it's worth delving into this morning because it has a lot to do with you and me. It's the first story of Jesus' ministry. It's the first miracle that Jesus performs. And it's got this fascinating setting. It's a wedding. It's a celebration. It's the bringing together of two families. And it's also a time where a village and an extended family and people even beyond in a much larger community can come together and be a part of a time where people are excited, enthusiastic, sharing. It also is a time where regular folks like you and me in those days didn't have a whole lot of abundant food and they certainly didn't have wine. Wine was something that was for wealthy people. And yet, if you notice when you hear the stories that Jesus tells, the parables from the Gospels, you hear about vineyards. You hear about workers in fields cultivating grapes and bringing them and making wine. What's significant about Jesus and the people surrounding him were they were not so much the ones enjoying the wine as they were working for the people who were enjoying the wine. In other words, they were the poor folks. They had good food. They had good bread, good cheese. They had uh, lots of fruits and vegetables, all kinds of grains like wheat and barley. They had food. They just didn't have it in abundance and they didn't have a lot of availability to wine, except at a wedding. 
which is why this is such a big deal. People come from all over the place, and the expectations are pretty high. Then was not a whole lot different than now. When you begin to sort of build in these, these expectations where people start looking around saying, you know, the, the Jones family had a really good wedding. So um, when we have a wedding celebration, we want to look better than the Jones, don't we? There's some, some built-in competition that's going on. And so people are concerned about not being quite as uh, cool and providing quite as much abundance as the family down the street. So there's this sort of background going on. It's the one time that people like you and me in those days really got to feel like they could eat all they want and drink all they want and enjoy this moment of celebration as a community where you celebrate two families coming together. So this is sort of what's happening. It's kind of the backstory to what plays into now where the camera focuses as the story begins to unfold. The moment that Mary steps out in this passage, you get the feeling if you're the director of this scene, you can kind of see the lights focused, not on Jesus, not on the disciples, not anywhere else, but on the mother of Jesus. Notice the way this scripture starts is, and the mother of Jesus was there. These are kind of the, the code words for the director of the scene. The camera is supposed to be on Mary. And what is it Mary's doing? She's a little concerned. In fact, she's a lot concerned. We don't know exactly her relationship to the people in charge of the wedding, but it appears that she's got some connection to the extent that she is concerned about them. She has become aware, as others are starting to become aware, what's happened in the story. They've run out of wine. This is where a little more background is helpful. So in those days, just like now in Palestine, for my Palestinian Christian friends, they say this is exactly the way they do weddings. You start on Wednesday, and guess how long you go? The celebration lasts until the next Wednesday. It's seven days long. So imagine you're providing abundant food, and wine for who knows how many people for seven days. Now, you all probably have people in your family like we have, and you probably have friends like this. If you're going to start at 7 o'clock on Wednesday, Uncle Ralph is going to show up about 5.30, and when is he going to leave? Not until 5.30 next Wednesday. He's going to stick around and enjoy everything. But then you have other people who can't make it because of their schedules until maybe Friday or Saturday or Sunday. There are going to be other people who wouldn't even be able to make it maybe until Tuesday. And you want to have enough for them to feel like they are fully involved and you are giving your best to them just like you did to Uncle Ralph. But there's a problem. They've run out of wine. We don't know what day of the week or how long into this celebration this occurred, but Mary, 
as the camera is on her, is very concerned. And so what does she do? She goes to Jesus and she says, they've run out of wine. Now Jesus knows what this means and he knows the situation and he knows Mary's involvement in the situation and her concern about the situation and his response is very interesting also. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. In other words, well, somebody else needs to fix this. And Mary's response is even more interesting. She doesn't say anything to Jesus. She turns to the steward and says, do what he tells you. Which is, as my Jewish friends say, this is a Jewish mother's way of saying, I'm gonna do it my way. Mary is very concerned about moving Jesus front and center. Even though the camera starts on her, the story begins with her concern. She is intent on moving the camera off her and onto Jesus. Some of you remember last week and John the Baptist, model of discipleship, knowing who he was not and knowing who he was, and his job description for who he was was to point people to Jesus and to prepare the way so that others could experience Jesus. Well, in a similar way, in this second chapter of John, this appears to be Mary's intent as well. The camera does not need to be on her. The camera, the focus, needs to be on Jesus, and Jesus is going to make a difference. Now this story also is unusual in that it's only told in the Gospel of John. There are reasons for that, and some of you know that John is not a part of what we call the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic is just a fancy Greek word that says seen together or put together. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a similar trajectory, a similar chronology, and they tell similar stories and use parables. And as Jesus in those three Gospels teaches people like you and me, it's through stories and parables. In John, there are no parables. Jesus never tells a story in the Gospel of John. That's because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the story. Jesus is the parable, and so the way John works, especially as it starts out now in this second chapter, what Jesus is and what Jesus does is key to what occurs in this moment. So Mary has the camera now refocused, not on her, but on Jesus, and what Jesus does is very interesting. He immediately makes a decision to use what is a common part of Jewish life as a part of a transforming moment. It's a moment that sort of gives attention to the word purification. We find out in the, the, the way the gospel unfolds is there were six jars for the rite of purification. So go back one slide, Bob, if you would. The rite of purification 
Well, yeah, there we go. This is what the stone jars look like. So this is in Cana of Galilee where the wedding takes place. And this is an example of what we would normally think of as a jar is much smaller, uh, like an amphora kind of thing. In fact, if you notice what we're looking at is a 20 to 30 gallon stone, what would have been probably a stone that was round, that was carved in the shape of this huge container so that in this could be put fresh water, also known as living water, water that comes directly from the sky that was seen as coming from God, that would be brought in with, with containers that would fill this container, buckets that would fill this up, 20 to 30 gallons. There's six of these, and they're used for a rite of purification. That is, people come in, they take the, the water out of this, and so the next slide you can see the, the width of this, Looking down now, I've taken my camera or my phone and I'm taking a picture down inside this huge stone container. And you see the thickness of the walls, it's been, it's been hewed out and it's now containing in this story up to the brim, fresh living water used for the ritual of purification. The way this worked was when people were going to worship, when they were gonna have any kind of prayer or interaction with God in a holy place. They would reach into this with a, a little cup and they would begin to wash their arms and their hands. They would wash their feet and their shoulders and their faces. Partly to be refreshing, just the idea of cleansing oneself is certainly something that allows us to feel good, but more as this preparation for worship, it was to prepare yourself to be in the presence of God. The way this story begins then, once the camera is off of Mary and on Jesus, Jesus makes this intentional shift so that it's not so much about the party now as it is about these giant stone containers filled with this water for ritual purification. Then Jesus does something interesting. He takes the camera away from him now and and puts it on the steward and the servants. In other words, he uses other people, like you and me, to make a difference in the story. So they're filling these things up with water, and then he says to the steward, now, taste it and see what's happened. And the steward suddenly recognizes that this dramatic change has occurred. It's no longer water, it has turned to wine. Now, why would that be significant? So we shift from this focus on purification now to what in, in our lexicon of church life becomes a new theological word in this story, and that is not purification so much as sanctification, where this wine is suddenly representing something more than just cleansing and purifying, it's sanctifying. In what way? Well, what happens in the wedding is what happens in a way in Passover, and that is that wine signifies something very important. In the wedding and at Passover, in the Jewish tradition, there is this beautiful recognition that Wine, the glass of wine lifted for Passover or the wine shared at a wedding celebration 
is representative of two things. One is it represents a partnership with God. This idea that we're in this together with our creator because we can do all the cultivation we want, but without the gift of God's sunlight and the gift of God's rain and the gift of the seeds of the ground, nothing can happen without the providence of God. And yet God needs us as co-creators to make something like wine occur. This cultivation of the earth in partnership with God was a significant moment where people gave thanks and gave credit where credit was due. We can do a lot, but we can't do anything without God. It was a recognition of partnership with God, but more importantly than that, both in Passover and at the wedding, it was a significant moment because wine represented joy, sacredness of life, this interaction with God in a way that we can't fully put into words, like the fermentation process of taking grapes and moving them, changing them, making them from, from one part to another. They go from being grapes to grape juice to in this mystery of fermentation, they become wine. And in Jewish life, this was not only mysterious, this was beautiful, it was vital. It was representative of the joy of life that comes with the liberation of the spirit and the celebration of partnership with God. From this second chapter of John, there is sort of an echo of what's going to come. By the 10th chapter of John, verse 10, Jesus is talking about abundance. And he says, I have become a part of your lives so that you might live, but not just live, but come alive more abundantly. And then by the 15th chapter of John, this idea of abundance is sort of morphed now into the complete understanding of joy, where in the 15th chapter, Jesus says, I have said these things to you so that my joy might come alive in you, so that your joy might be made complete and full. There's this overlap, this sort of uh, movement emerging of abundance and being together with Jesus, listening, being a part of ministry and being liberated from our own concerns and participating fully in partnership with him. This abundance of joy, this idea, in fact, a complete and wholeness that Jesus talks about with joy is another way of saying salvation. The word salvation actually means complete and wholeness. You participate in my joy, Jesus says, and you become a part fully of the salvation process. You're liberated from where you are and you become a part of what God wants you to be. It's an amazing transformation, probably signified by the changing of regular everyday stuff, water, into this mysterious stuff, wine. Partnership with God, joy, liberation of the spirit. It was in 1968, April the 3rd, Dr. King was in Memphis, Tennessee. 
he was marching and had just completed a march with the sanitation workers in Memphis and was meeting with a group of clergy and others who had gathered along with the sanitation workers to lend support. It was a sermon that would become the second most famous sermon behind the I Have a Dream speech in 1963. This is I've Been to the Mountaintop sermon where in the culmination of that famous sermon, Dr. King says, I've seen the promised land. I've been to the mountaintop. I might not get there with you, but we as a people will make it to the promised land. This was the the culmination of this remarkable sermon. What we sometimes forget is in the middle of that sermon were these words. Our task is not so much to ask the question of the priest and the Levite in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. For their question was this one. If I help this man, what will happen to me? The question is a legitimate one because probably the robbers were still nearby. But that is not the question God calls us to ask. The question God calls us to ask is not from the Levite and the priest, but rather the question the Samaritan asks. And that is this question. If I don't help, what will happen to him? In other words, what Jesus begins in this second chapter of John is this liberating moment, this principle of looking beyond ourselves and being liberated to stop being afraid and worry about me and being opened up to being a part of and concerned about us. It is part of that liberating process, this joy, this abundance, this life that comes with being a part of Jesus' journey that allows us the strength to be more than we thought we could be and to be a part of God's hopes and dreams so that regular stuff like water gets transformed into wine. And we don't have to worry about being cleansed and purified because we become sanctified and liberated in the joy of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may this come alive in you and me this weekend and every day. Amen.